listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. to uh, make sure that this teaching, such as it is, gets offered in a way that's kind of, uh, as I've said, uh, stripped of cultural trappings. Um, it's kind of reduced, if you will, uh, to uh, just kind of a, an interpretation that can help people recognize some very specific things. Um, to begin with, it's to disabuse anyone in this room of whatever their interpretations of enlightenment or awakening might be. Rather than it being something that is achieved, okay, uh, my hope is that through this teaching and through the practice of this teaching, it's instead something that is realized or I guess the best way to put it is rather than something that is reached, it is something that kind of falls into one's life. That none of us looks at awakening as something that we get, but rather something that gets woven into the fabric of this very life that we're leading. And that happens in um, uh, pretty specific ways. Uh, to begin with, we look to understand where it is that we are. Most of us uh, arrive at practice through some type of existential, you know, break or something. We're, we're troubled by or inspired by some type of difficulty in our life. And in this series of moments where we realize something's not quite right, something isn't fitting, there's an incongruity in the way I am moving uh, I had someone once tell me in a very, it was a beautiful emotional moment for this person. It's like they, they, they came into a dokusan, this was at a retreat some years ago, and the comment that came wasn't even a question. It's just one step forward, three steps back. It was just a beautiful moment, just and looking at their frustration and so forth. And the recognition that this just intense suffering that was going on. And they, of course, hated my response, which was something along the lines of perfect. You know? Okay, now we're ready. You know? Um, you're in that space of one step forward, three steps back, or even two steps back. Even one step back. <laughs> Holding pattern, you know? It's like a record skipping. Whenever we feel like we're in that space, we are offered an opportunity to begin to understand where we are. 
the books start getting read, right? We start taking dips into Dharma pools all over the place. Might be seeking out various teachers, various teachings. Our library suddenly increases. As I've mentioned, usually some people who really begin to identify with the Buddha's teachings and so forth uh, begin uh, oftentimes putting shrines up in their house or a little area dedicated to meditation. I'm actually all in favor of this. I think this is fine. But it can get um, kind of comical when all the accoutrements of religiosity begin, uh, they become part of our costume, you know, as a way of advertising, you know. Well, what is it that you do? Well, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, kind of a cool little stage. That understanding. Well, there comes a point where that understanding leads us into this space where we can let go. The understanding points to this one really, really simple thing. It's that we're clinging Oh, we're holding on. You know, we're holding on for dear life <laughs> in many respects. Well, so what happens? We begin to unlet go. We release, we open. And then in that opening, what happens is we begin to realize. We begin to realize, oh, oh. Awakening was here all along. Enlightenment isn't something you get. It's something you've never lost. It's something you simply rediscover through the very simple and specific actions involved in understanding and then surrender and then cultivation. Okay? And then finally, we begin to integrate all of that stuff together. And what I'm just laying out here in real simple terms is the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. There is suffering, number one. Number two, there's a cause to suffering, and that's clinging. Number three, there's an end to suffering. Okay. And number four, here's how you do it. Now, in the West, especially in sanghas like this that try to strip the cultural trappings out of it, they go, why don't you just take us to part four? Fourth noble truth, the how. You know, can you do that? Can we just skip the other? Actually, you can't. We can't. There needs to be a level of understanding. There needs to be a level of practiced recognition of the causes of our suffering. There needs to be a cultivation, actually, of the insights gained from surrender, from letting go. There needs to be an integration of our droid phones with... I'm sorry. Hanky. Uh, So right here we had the Four Noble Truths actually happen. There was an immediate suffering when that sucker went off. You're like, 
and it's like, okay, let go of it. <laughs> and then you started cracking up, which is really the release of it. Now we're cultivating that. Now we're integrating that. Yeah. Anyway, the point I'm kind of I'm getting long-winded about here is that when we really reduce this stuff, we really, really take it down to its essential, essential qualities, uh, or essential, um, the teaching down to its, its studs, okay? What we can recognize is, uh, there, are a couple, there are a couple things, but what I want to set you off with here as we begin our meditation is, you have precisely all you need right now in this room. You have all you need for this stuff to begin to unfold. All you need is right here. Okay? But my knees are too sore. Perfect. But I don't get it. That's just fine. But I got a call I got to take here, McAllister. Perfect. It sets us up. We are set up this whole life experience. Every circumstance we have sets us up. It's an offering. It just basically, like, <laughs> I remember my dad used to, he used to do this just, he would sit out there in the pool and I'd be on the edge and he would always just hold his hands out and he would say, Are you ready? I would say, yeah. And he'd say, jump. And I'd go. <laughs> and then I'd jump. But there's this cultivation of trust. I knew he was going to catch me. I knew that he was going to let me go underwater a little bit. And then he'd pull me up. Good job, bud. Let's do it again, you know. I began to trust that process. Right? Every circumstance we're in is that same force for you. Maybe it wasn't your dad helping you learn how to swim. Maybe it was someone else. Maybe it's something self-taught. Whatever it is, it's when you learned, I can actually trust this. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep pushing myself. Let that inspire your heart and mind into going a little deeper, into reaching. Reach out as far as you can. You'll find that it curves back inward. The further out you reach, the deeper you go. It's a bizarre and mysterious gift that you get to give self and other in the process of your work on the path. Sometimes I talk about how the light of this teaching is continually shining. It's just that we have cloud cover. You know? That even on rainy days, even on stormy nights, the sun is shining. Might be on the other side of the planet, but the light has not diminished at all. When we find ourselves in the midst of cloud cover, let's say. All we have to do is pay very, very close attention to those clouds. The attention that we pay to them, in essence, metaphorically, 
offers us a chance to see the breaks. The breaks in that cloud cover where light can shine through. And little glimpses of that really can work to sustain and deepen our practice. My guess is that every single person here in this room has had some type of moment that we could uh, loosely and clumsily call an aha moment. Uh, A whoa. (laughs) An oh wow, as we talked about last time. An oh wow moment. They can work to sustain us. They can also confuse us at times. Um, one of the things that many of you will, will maybe you've already recognized, um, meditative work can oftentimes show up as uh, we can get into some really, really interesting states. One of the big things for me as I was going through my beginning stages of meditation was I was able to kind of begin this work on various states. It was like I was getting high. And I was like, oh, hey, this is cool. You know, I can actually go into this space and this space, okay, you know, kind of play with it and read books about it and so forth. But it became really a distraction to the actual work of stillness. Because what I was looking for was to feel good. I was looking for pleasure, which always comes from something external. Have you ever noticed that? Pleasure always comes from something external. Joy comes from deeply within. Another person doesn't bring us joy. They let us walk through joy's doorway, which is always internal. Or if we don't like that metaphor, we don't walk through it, we, it's revealed within well so what I kind of wanted to bring about as, uh, as best I can in tonight's, uh, tonight's discussion is this idea of looking at the beginnings of this stuff if we really reduce everything to this idea of you know there is, there is suffering okay there's a cause to the suffering there's an end to the suffering And there's a way, there's a path. We start looking at this not so much as necessarily a ladder. Okay, we don't necessarily climb these four noble truths, starting with, you know, suffering, although that's usually the most obvious. Okay, as I mentioned, we come into this experience uh, of meditative work. We find a sangha that resonates with us. The teacher, the teaching, and the group tend to work for us in some capacity. This helps us with the first stage of recognizing our suffering, recognizing where it is we don't feel aligned with truth or whatever you want to call it. The disalignment that can be experienced, we begin to sit with that. We begin to understand it. Once again, we read the books. Okay. We listen to the Dharma talks. We put ourselves in front of great teachers. And one of the reasons is, I've said before, this, this goes back to my own experience as a meditator early on, 
how cool is it that we were, we find ourselves here in the Bay Area where the dynamism of the West meets the peace of the East. Right here. And how it's spreading now. I think uh, with this global mind we call the Internet, um, these teachings are making themselves available to so many so fast. It's just a remarkable thing. Anyway, we can begin to understand. Once we understand our suffering, okay, once we can see our blindness, I'll say that again, when we can see our blindness, okay, we find ourselves in um, situations where we are running, typically, running away, running toward, whatever it is, we're running. We're trying to get out of this. Or we're trying to get into that. And we find that this is kind of, this leads us into this second space. Oh my gosh, there's a cause to all this existential angst that I feel. This, this anguish. This pain that just, I don't, I can't even really put a finger on it. It's just generalized pain. Referential pain on an emotional level might even manifest physically in our bodies. It might show up as an intense, all-encompassing desire for something. It might show I mean, there are all sorts of things that may show up. But that suffering then, understanding that suffering, helps us recognize its origin. We start seeing that the origin of all of that suffering is clinging to something clinging to pleasure. I want to have a pleasurable experience. Freud's pleasure principle. That's what we're going for. I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but I was teaching a a psychology class and I had this... uh, (laughs) We were talking about Freud. I'll tell you, uh, uh, students love Freud in general, um, especially those that are around 18 years old. (laughs) I I had this kid say... Say, oh, just so I can be like really clear on this, I'm not trying to be crude or anything. I want to be really respectful of how I ask this question. But basically, Freud says, all we want to do is get laid, right? And my response was, yep. That that's basically just this primal urge to have that sexual release or have the similar experience through kind of what he called, you know, bloodlust and so forth. Killing sexuality, the id run amok. That's, that's, what, that's what's so primal in each of us. Well, I think there's a lot more to it. I think most psychologists would agree that that's a wildly simplistic view of the way we are as human beings. That uh, compendium to all that is to love and be loved. That it goes beyond the sexual impulse. It goes beyond the, you know, you know, the, the, the bloodlust that it goes into something much deeper, that actually there's this deep yearning for God. And that each of us can experience that release, that oneness, that loss of self, when we are in extreme situations like sexual expression, like something that puts us very close to death.
I know I'm doing kind of a runaround analysis here on Freud, but just, just so that we can kind of weave that into what, what it is that we're talking about here. As we look at our suffering, we can begin to look at the cause of our suffering as being that clinging. What is it that you're clinging to? What are you holding on to? Maybe it's identity. Is there an identity that you're just holding on to? How about your body? Are you hanging on to your body? I, for one, am finding it really incredible how uh, my body, I can feel age much more now. And I know many of you look at me as like, oh, shut up, you're a kid. You want to know pain? You want to know arthritic pain? I'll give you something to cry about, come here. (laughs) But it's a very, very interesting thing. Old age, sickness, death. Clinging. Clinging to this self. It's like grasping at air. We can't hold on to it. We cannot prevent the inevitable. Just like gravity always wins, death always awaits. But so does birth. Anyway, clinging. The source of our suffering. The beauty is, once we start recognizing the source of our suffering, we start looking at our clinging. We not only understand the clinging causes all this, but we can actually begin to look at the core of our clinging. We can look at exactly the mechanism internally behind our grip or our aversion, our greed or our avoidance. We can start seeing those tilts forward and back, to and fro. We can start recognizing that, oh, if I just center myself, if I become more grounded, if I actually physically embody an upright posture right in the middle of these pushes and pulls, there's an end. There's a glimpse The light shines through. I turn my face up and I am kissed. I kiss and am kissed by love and light. Like that. And then we begin to look at this openness. As our, as our suffering begins to, as there's a cessation, as we say, a cessation of suffering. We start actually experiencing walking as openness. And then this leads us into a deepening of our practice. Our path becomes rich. We start seeing that there are certain ethical principles by which we need to live not because someone tells us we must but because it spontaneously arises out of this recognition of what we might just as easily call non-self we start seeing beyond this self similar to the experience of losing self in something that we're doing fully maybe it's an athletic event maybe you're at the opera maybe you're watching a film 
Maybe you're playing with a child. Whatever it is, we start seeing that there is something way beyond our thoughts and feelings. That when we connect to it consciously, it begins to inform our thoughts and feelings. And we become radical, profound expressions in every moment and in every way of love and light. We start living from a place where we don't do harm. We start living from a place where we care for self and other. We start hearing perspectives and seeing viewpoints that extend way beyond our simple, limited, personal versions of truth. And we start seeing expansive, radically honest, open versions of impersonal truth pervading every single thing it is that we see. We might have preferences, but those preferences no longer hold us. They're just preferences. They're no longer, if you will, attachments. We start living as an expression of non-attachment, which doesn't mean that we avoid anything. It means that we are right in that space, that space between, that neither goes after nor avoids, as I mentioned earlier. So how does this show up? Um, What's the action What's the the action verb for each of these things? Well, if you look at suffering itself, that's recognition. Recognize. Recognize the stories you tell, excuse me, the stories you tell yourself. Recognize what lies you tell yourself. That's probably the most important. You know, being truly and deeply honest. What lies do you keep telling yourself over and over again? What truths do you tell yourself? Then once you see those lies and those truths, you start reading the scripts very carefully that ego has authored for its its own performance, its own monologue on the stage of mind. Then begin the process of releasing the clinging. Our dilemma, if you will, comes in the fact that we, um, we have this suffering and there's a cause to this suffering. Okay? We start recognizing the suffering... And we start also, if you will, recognizing the fact that we're gripping onto things. Okay? We start seeing that this is our problem. This is the source of all the mess. Okay? And there's this beautiful shift that can occur. Okay? As we start doing that, as we start getting more deeply and deeply intimate with our own experience, we start seeing that there is a resolution. And that resolution comes in the realization of this openness that perpetually exists between our thoughts. We start 
realizing that there is more to this story than I, me, and mine. That there is more to this story than what's limited. It's actually expansive. That there's an incredibly rich array of circumstances, in fact, an infinite number of circumstances that we might meet. And if we meet them with our full heart and our full mind, they will lead us precisely into this space that goes beyond heart and mind. That the infinite, if you will, awaits. And that every bit of suffering, every bit of clinging that we've engaged in has basically been to fend off this realization. We are getting offerings again and again and again from the universe. Every single thing leads us directly into the heart of awakening if we're ready to take those steps and we refuse to take the steps even when the universe bashes us over the head and says, come on, come home, damn it. Sometimes it's not nice about it. (laughs) Try taking a big, massive, fat tragedy that you've experienced. That's the universe basically scraping ego. Scraping ego's skin. Come in. I'm here. I'm here. It's all here. Are you ready? And that's where ego usually throws up its tiny little fist. Back off. Right? So we go from this place of realization into a deepening practice. The whole time here, hopefully, we've been sitting still because realization cannot happen without stillness. Okay? You can have little doses of it, but to get this stuff to really ground itself, to, for it to become, if you will, embodied in experience, for it to get integrated into this thing so we can be in the world, but not confined by it, or to use the actual quote, be in the world, but not of it. I struggle with that quote in some respects, just to go a little sidebar here. Being in the world and not of it, so many people confuse that with meaning, I'm in the world, but I'm not really a part of it. That I would interpret as a major flaw and or error in our interpretation of the quote. Being in the world because I'm participating deeply and full-heartedly in the world, but I'm not confined by the world. I'm not confined by the reality of what I see, hear, and feel, taste, touch. I'm not confined by these senses. I'm actually able to use, we are actually able to use the inputs as ways of actually supporting a total and complete participation that is always, always supported by generosity and care and love and light. So this path that we begin to walk, this ethical structure, this meditation practice, this, if you will, continual enrichment 
by caring for ourselves and others in life, by not doing harm. This participation in the world in ways that's helpful, ways that are helpful, so important, so important. But what this does is it takes the realization and brings it home. So that the next bout of suffering that we engage in, we can identify immediately. We can see it. We can see its causes. We can see its roots. And in the seeing of those roots, they begin to kind of wither. This practice is kind of like spiritual roundup that you might use on your weeds on your yard. You squirt it. Okay, that's probably the worst metaphor I've used in weeks. <laughs> I thought that was the most amazing stuff. Have you ever used You squirt it on a weed and it, and it only kills the weed. It, like, anybody? No? Okay, I'll just let it go. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to get emails. Do you know what that does to the environment, you bastard? That's not enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. It does harm the weed. It sure does. It definitely does harm the weed. Yeah, and so maybe I should explore that. A weed is just a misplaced plant, isn't it? Right? hate dandelions teasing where the hell was I I don't know that it's that important anymore I kind of made my point we've got these four noble truths and they're actually I think calls to action rather than uh, anything you know anything you might you might look at it as something that's intellectual but basically it's saying if you will recognize your plight as it is fully Meet it honestly and totally. Look at your plight's causes. They're all about your clinging. Let go. Okay? In the letting go, you will begin to unpackage and release into a rather grandiose opening. Let it in and let it out. And then as that begins to occur, make sure you tend to your realization by giving it the structure of teacher, teaching, group. Make sure that there is a sense in you that this is to be used for purposes that extend way beyond your personal sense of what is right and what is wrong, but actually something much bigger than that. What is the most generous thing you could do for all beings? Practice with all beings. And that's really where we begin and where we end.
sitting. Why? Why is it that we have to be still? Yes. I'm thinking of the art. What was it called that book a long time ago? The art of archery. Zen. Zen of archery. Zen of archery. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. I'm really poorly read. It's, it's all good, all good, but those are th- th- what happens is your your experience of stillness occurs only in the gross form, not in the subtle or the causal realm okay it's not until you actually physically sit still that you can begin to have an undiluted experience. Do you ever taste tang? Oh, yeah. remember tang yeah, now have you ever tasted odwalla orange juice? What's the difference? It's difficult to describe. It is. One is. It is difficult to describe, isn't it? But you know one is more intense than the other, don't you? It's the same thing. You can have tang. <laughs> and tang and walla and roundup. Those are three things we've discussed. Three various. Th- is that the title for the talk? <laughs> But do you, I'm just using metaphor to try to give words to something where words really kind of fail. But ego. Oh, I know. Then let me, let me try to let me try to come at it from another way. Ego wants movement. Period. Okay. The ego goes after anything that moves. It it is powerless in the face of stillness. Okay. So as long as either you bodily are moving. Or mind is moving, or emotions are vibing, right? Ego's at home. And so when we physically begin to, if you will, force stillness, what happens is ego has fewer and fewer refuges. It can't turn, it can't habitually go where it wants to go. Because you're actually not um, moldable. The malleability has fallen away. Yeah. Right. You're still in a place where you can be mm-hmm. thinking. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that once you have grounded yourself in a stillness practice, that all those things can't occur. Of course, they can. They're just enhanced in a much different way. Just like Adwala enhances your experience differently than Tang. And I would not recommend ever touching Roundup. Don't drink it. Yeah. You're very welcome. <laughs> it's kind of like a question. I, <clears throat> one of my favorite musicians is Yo-Yo Ma, cello player. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing him perform was on television, and he played this very complicated piece for half an hour. He totally memorized beautifully. The camera shot up to him and his eyes kind of opened and they were rolled back into his head. Where was he? I mean, is that an incredible meditation? Is it... I'm just... I mean, that's kind of an example. You, you hear it in artists, oh, yeah. musicians, athletes, the ability of states. That, yeah. Does this make any sense? Sure it does. Sure it does. And here again, I would say that just like I, I was responding to Iris's question, he is going into a very deep state in this, if you will, gross realm, this bodily realm. He knows what he's doing, 
but he knows what he's doing so fully and completely that he can give himself over to it totally. And his expression of the art, his expression of the music, what comes out of his hands, his fingers, and the instrument itself are coming from a place of total release, of total non-yo-yo. Yo-yo is not there. He's visually there, but is yo-yo there to himself? Is he thinking to himself, this is going to sound good? Oh, but do, do, do. No, he's not. He's giving totally. It's utter and complete. He has become a vessel. We see any great artist, any great athlete, any great anybody who in the moment of their grace offers themselves up totally. What do we see? God. Okay? Then, once they come back down with the football, then they get up and do some type of wild egotistical dance that basically <laughs> celebrates selfhood. Right? Or when they can just dunk the basketball. Although I think the dunk of a basketball, as athletic as it is, sometimes can be a wild expression of dominance and ego. Catching a football, a little different. You can't be thinking about it when, you know... You see some of those. So, and here again, I mean, people might disagree with me totally, but it's, uh, it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing when you see someone lose self in what it is that they're doing. Pablo Picasso said that uh, art is a lie that helps us realize truth. And we see truth when art is done as beautifully as it can be done, whatever that art might be. I have time for one more. If anybody, uh, anybody has one, of course we could all go home. Thank you so much for coming tonight.